This week, we went to a fairy tale city to watch a comedy darker than I take my coffee. Because this week, some of us finally watched In Bruges. Welcome back to How Did You Miss This, a show where we finally take a look at some of those movies that we've missed along the way. I'm Evan Toller-Hickey, and with me as always, Michael Hansen and Chris Shane. And today we are talking about the 2008 film In Bruges. Uh, this is directed by Martin McDonough, it's starring Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson, like the Banshees of Inishirin, uh, but not... Um, so 2008, um, did you guys miss this movie first time around? I, I think I watched this a lot later, to be honest. I think I, I rented it the first time. I didn't know anything about it, uh, except it just like probably that the trailer looked good. Uh, so I, I watched it probably a few years after it came out and I just remembered loving it and, uh, spoiler, I've watched it many times since. So that should give you some idea about uh, how much I, I like this movie. Yeah, I I got this movie as a rental back in the days when DVDs would be sent to you in the mail. Uh, so after it was in theaters, but, you know, not long after, probably, you know, shortly a year or two after it was out. Uh, I'd heard good things um, about this uh, and it was kind of in the rent renaissance of Colin Farrell. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed it, but I, I haven't seen it in probably a dozen years or something like that. So, but Evan, you, you were our, our slacker here. Yeah. Yet again. Okay. So yes, I missed this movie. Um, this, this movie has been recommended to me probably more than any other single film that, uh, we have done, or maybe will do in this podcast. I have rented this movie 15, 16 times. I'm serious. I have uh, burnt this movie onto DVD illegally uh, because I had rented it so many times. I'm like, fuck it. I'm just going to burn it and I will get around to it. And yet this is still the first time <laughs> that I've finally watched this finally movie. Oh, God. Oh, God. I'm <laughs> sorry, guys. <laughs> Well, I'm glad I'm glad we could finally drag you all the way over the line after getting so close so many times. But how about before we get into talking about the movie, we uh, talk a little bit about how it came to be. Yeah. So this movie, 2008, uh, early opens early in the year. Uh, it had screened at Sundance, sort of came out early February. Not a lot of good stuff coming out around that time. Like when we were talking about what opened along with it, we're talking Vince Vaughn's Wild West comedy show and uh, the Matthew McConaughey film Fool's Gold. So kind of opened in the uh, dark days of winter where I don't think people really uh, went out to theaters. Um, box office wise, we're talking like, you know, $34 million worldwide. I mean, it was a $15 million budget on this. It only made $7 million in the US. So really didn't get a ton of traction, made its money back and then some. But, you know, this is also a year in which like The Dark Knight was, you know, 
killing over a billion dollars at the box office. And so kind of went pretty unnoticed. You know, it it, it did get a couple of award nods. Um, it was nominated for Best Original Screenplay um, at the Oscars. That award went to Milk that year, which I did see in theaters, gentlemen. So... So that's that's one. Uh, you don't get credit for a movie we're not watching. It. Sorry, <laughs> it's not the way this works. Uh, it opened the same year as Kung Fu Panda, Wally, Milk, Slumdog Millionaire, and Indiana Jones and the Crystal Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, all of which I saw in theaters. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it it won some BAFTAs. It was um, nominated for the Best Picture uh, for Comedy Musical at Golden Globes. Didn't get it. Farrell and Gleason. Both nominated for Best Actor, Comedy Musical, The Golden Globes, Colin Farrell wins. So that's really the one big award that this one takes away. You know, aside from that, quite positive reviews across the board. We're talking 84% on Rotten Tomatoes. So a movie that, you know, really kind of hit the mark with a lot of people, though maybe the super, super, super dark uh, tone uh, turned off some viewers. But I, but yeah, to your point, uh, generally great reviews. Uh, and so, speaking of reviews, uh, Michael, now that you've rewatched this, uh, you were a fan. I'm assuming you're still a fan. What did you think? I will continue to rewatch this probably every one or two years, as long as I. Can I think it is? It is one of my favorite movies. Uh, that makes sense, especially because you were the one who kind of boosted this up in our rankings so that we would watch it, right? So there you go. I'm not surprised by that. Um, I'm generally happy to have seen this again, though I don't think I would like to see it every few years or two years like you. It's a good watch again for me. I was happy to see it and still enjoyed it. But uh, Evan, uh, for you, was this a movie that you were happy to finally, after like 47 attempts, uh, wind up seeing? Or is this something that you wished had stayed missed? No, I'm I'm so glad that I've finally seen this movie. I, it was right up my alley. I really loved this film. So Thank you. Thank you, Michael, for pushing it all the way up the list. Uh, I'm sure there will be times where we will be cursing each other for pushing movies up the list. Uh, but this one, big thumbs up. Well, there you go. Awesome. Glad you liked it. There we go. So um, before we dive into it, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will break it all down about what we thought about the rest of this movie. Right. So we're back uh, before we get into it. Uh, spoiler warning, as always, we're going to break it down, all the details of what we're thinking uh, about the movie. And of course, spoil all the plot and fun stuff along the way. So uh, run away now. Otherwise, uh, here we go. So before we get into it, I'm going to break down quickly what this movie is about uh, and then we can go from there. So um, this movie is about two hitmen who hide out in the medieval town of Bruges after a job goes terribly wrong. Uh, for one of them, it's a tourist wonderland, but for the other, it is an awful, awful shithole. So, I mean, I don't think we can start this conversation off without talking about um, 
Brendan Gleeson, Colin Farrell, and Ray Fiennes as the three leads uh, in this movie. So let's go. What do we think of the three? I mean, I'm going to just go out and say it. Is Colin Farrell a criminally underrated actor? I I feel like he was, uh, you know, kind of like the the on the track to be like action, pretty boy um, guy in the in the late 90s, early 2000s. But like, holy shit, the guy can act. Yeah. I mean, drugs is a a hell of a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, this is this is one of his first movies back after he got sober. Uh, so, um, I mean, that's actually one of the kind of foundational things that got him and Brendan Gleeson so close was, you know, he was freshly, um, you know, out of recovery. I think this was either the first or second movie that he filmed. Uh, and he and Brendan Gleeson, uh, you know, started becoming these very close friends even before filming as a result of uh, Brendan Gleeson kind of like taking care of him and made sure that he stayed on the wagon. So even before they were in scenes, uh, this was kind of uh, uh, this, this buddy, buddy thing uh, taking, taking root. But yeah, this is, this is uh Farrell just coming kind of coming back on the scene after uh, a couple years of, of, you know, kind of going off the rails. So um, yeah, I think that's maybe the big turn. Cause he, he had quite a career before this, uh, it, like your point early two thousands, he was a mainstay and then a lot of not so good movies, mm-hmm. including daredevil with Ben Affleck and Jennifer Garner, where he plays bullseye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think we could probably do a list. I uh, do a list of the mid two thousands movies that are maybe a little dubious, but um, I mean, yeah, he he dried out and was back on the scene and and paired up with another Irish actor in Brendan Gleeson who had a an amazing career. I mean, he'd been working successfully for probably two decades up to this point, um, and then pairing up with with uh, Martin McDonough, who was uh, you know a playwright up to this point. This is his his second movie that he'd made. Um, one was the short film before this, but yeah, it was kind of this coming together of a few folks who had had, um, you know, successful careers up to this point, but it's kind of this new, new, uh, uh, tag team trio, I guess, uh, that, that really came in force coming together on this one. I think that the, uh, the three of them, I bet you we're going to be talking about this as a theme throughout this thing, but the, the three of them really defy a simple characterization because uh, Colin Farrell's character, he's so cocky, but he also has this incredible um, insecurity and he's so close to breaking down. Uh, and they're all this mix of each of them are, are just like crazy mixes of personalities and labels that you would normally think of. So like they pull this off so well, every character is in there's something more than just like a, a one dimensional uh, character. And, and I think that's, the the staying power of it with me it's probably also why it would be very difficult to market because what do you call this thing it's not it's not a crime drama it's not a comedy even though it's got incredibly comedic elements it's just it's not this one single thing no not not at all it's not one single thing and nor nor is each uh each of the characters a single thing, right? Everybody's um, much deeper than a, a puddle, uh, you know. And ultimately, to your point, it's like all three of them are. So um, Ray finds his character, who's Harry, the, the like boss, the crime boss, and then Farrell and Gleason, who are these two hitmen. Um, 
you know, in their own ways are all kind of reckoning with we're bad people who do bad things. But, you know, maybe we aren't all bad, maybe in our own ways and kind of these different ways that we figure out. And I think that's what makes each of these characters interesting and what makes them work with each other. Right. Like Gleason is a hitman who kind of knows he's a hitman. But, you know, he can kind of live with that. Right. Ray finds his character is the boss who's like, look, as long as you have a code. It, it seems to be okay to do what you do. And Colin Farrell, who's the kind of the new guy, is the one who's having this, this um, you know, emotional reaction to having accidentally shot a kid while doing his first job. Like, there, there's this fun balancing act that goes on between all three of them at times where you kind of understand them and appreciate them at times, even though they're kind of terrible. Yeah, and I think that the the fact that they all work so well together, and particularly Farrell and Gleason, um, really cements this movie as truly excellent. I mean, they they've got really wonderful writing to be working with. Um, and as we've said, you know, these characters are much more than than, you know, one or two dimensional. They are very, very fully realized characters they rub up against each other so well you know watching Farrell and Gleason in that first half of the movie it really does feel like kind of a a classic like odd couple play like you you really do feel like you are uh, you know, along for the ride with whatever the characters from the odd couple's names were that uh, completely escaped <laughs> me right now. Yeah. Well, and I think, I think, I think you're right. And I think um, it's a big credit to the two of them because um, they, they do such a good job making dark stuff funny and then also veering back into the seriousness of what's just happened. And like they can turn on a dime from being like, you're chuckling about something awful and they're making jokes where you're like, I don't know if these guys are nice guys. Uh, and then like, but you're still laughing about it. And then suddenly back, be back into serious territory and then, you know, pop back out the other side five seconds later and you're like, Oh, okay. We're being funny again. And like, you're never quite sure what lies around a corner, uh, because they're constantly taking these turns. And I think that's a huge credit to to both of them because I can't imagine how hard it must have been to get through these scenes, making these jokes and making these kind of like, you know, haha funny things without laughing and then veering right back into like one of them busting into tears. One of the things that really hit for me was that these two characters uh are true anti-heroes and remember this is a year that like the dark knight comes out and everyone you know looks at batman and it's like oh batman he's the anti-hero and it's just you've got all of these comic book anti-heroes who are dark and brooding and that's what they do and they're just kind of they're vigilantes and that's what makes them anti-heroes but these characters these are true anti-heroes they are morally dubious they're struggling with their own morality. They're struggling with their own mortality. They're struggling with the mortality of those around them. Uh, and that, to me, is what makes this whole thing so completely compelling. Yeah, what's so good about them is that you 
and and you're right like of course how we define morality like of course that's true at the same time they also have a code that each of them stick to and and that's kind of what leads to the to the end um uh, the conclusion that we'll get to, but they each have such a strong code about like what's right or wrong, and they know this. Like they, and and this is kind of what makes them uh, more than just like these random killers, uh, because they live by that code uh, each in their own so way. So let me let me ask here, because I I definitely get that Harry has a code and Ken has a code. Does Ray have a code? I don't know that Ray was on the job long enough to have a code. And I think that that's why he's so messed up. I think he was trying to uh, find a code in that scene or or like play the, the kind of macho hitman that he thought he should be when he kills the priest. You know, Harry sends uh, his regards kind of thing and bam, bam, bam. Like, how many times are you going to shoot this guy? Uh, before he finally falls down. I mean, and, the, the gun would have run out of bullets at some point. Yeah. I, d- yeah. I don't know if he was going to reload, but yeah, yeah. a lot. Uh, and and then the reveal after all of that, uh, you know, machismo and uh, verbato that he then is just completely uh, gutted because he's killed a kid. Yeah. It's, it's a good question though. Like I, I think it has to do with, he has not had enough time to internalize that yet. He will say things like I would never hit uh, a woman, but of course, clearly he does. And I would never do this. But she but, came but out clearly of the bottle <laughs> yeah. and a, and a right. bottle is a deadly weapon. They've already established that. Right. Uh, but, but then of course he also then, feels it strong enough that that he like there's this pivotal scene later right like when he is preparing to to just end it all so like clearly he has these things he's got these uh, strong things but i think whereas he's just starting out i think in uh brendan gleason's case like he just has the the years he's he's got the mileage to kind of for that to have settled into uh a character like a a, a person of strong morality and and like ethos. I think the question around the bottle is one of my favorite things here because um, the bottle is one of those things that I've seen like the first time you watch it, that's one of the obvious ones, but this is a movie that is full of callbacks. So the whole conversation that he has, that Ray has with Ken, where Ken lays out, hey, you know, I, I don't really regret any of the people I've killed. Oh, except for that guy's brother. But he came at me with a bottle. So what was I supposed to do? And then Ray is like, well, I mean, he came at you with a bottle. I mean, that's a deadly weapon. I mean, what else could you do? And then in the restaurant is confronted by a woman with a bottle. And he, you know, says, I'd never hit a woman afterwards. But like, then you get that call back to, but she had a bottle. That's a deadly weapon, right? This is a movie that is full of these callbacks throughout. And so like, maybe this is where we need to touch on some of the the writing here because it's those callbacks throughout the movie where it's like, you know, there's Chekhov's gun, but like, this is a like Chekhov's armory here. Like every little thing that's put into this movie early on is brought back in various ways from the coins in Ken's pocket to the, um, the, uh, the, the painting that they're looking at in the museum, like everything is a callback. So is there, are there some callbacks that, um, are worth calling back for each of you? Uh, my favorite one in the whole thing, aside from the bottle, which is 
so funny. Uh, it is the the Chekhov's finger guns. It's that at at that first act, Gleason's on top of the tower and he sees Ray walking around below, and he does that kind of finger gun, and then in that third act, jumps from the tower down below and is like, "Take my gun." But it, the gun doesn't broken. work it's yeah. because it's just finger guns in the, for, you know, it was he was shooting nothing in that first act. I just it is so beautifully brought around. I uh, that was one that really got me for callbacks. For me, I think the uh, everything that Ray finds does, I think. It's just great because early on, there's so many small things that he says that establishes the type of character he is uh, in terms of, you know, essentially like rules are rules. If you do this, this has to happen. And his idea that, you know, you you do the right thing for someone, but it, but they still have to, to get it in the end. And how he, uh, his incredible temperament that you see, but then he goes to his kids to sit down and kind of talk to them uh, sort of in a nice way. Like you see this playing back later when he talks to Ken, uh, like that anger with the, but you're still my friend. Of course I can't kill you. Like there's these really interesting, you know, that that's all been established early on in the movie uh, for me. Yeah. I, I, I found myself, um, on, on every rewatch of this. Uh, so, you know, I saw it once years ago, I remembered some of these coming and then I rewatched it, uh, again after I'd watched it again for this. So twice, basically for this, that was a, hard way to say that, but, um, and the, the amazing thing is you notice more and more and more of them as you rewatch it again. Cause you might see some on the first pass, but then you notice more. Cause I didn't notice until I was watching it again that before Ken, uh, you know, jumps out of the, the tower, he sprinkles the change that is in his pocket to make sure nobody's underneath him. Right. He sprinkles the change. Everybody gets out of the way because his money falling. And it's that great callback to that first scene where they're going up the tower. And he's like, oh, you know, I'm just 10 cents short of paying for this ticket with change. The guy's like, no, it's five euros. Exactly. Got to be five euros. Exactly. And that's like, oh, right. Like all these little payoffs that you forget about easily uh, just keep coming back. So for me, that that was the one where I was like, oh, another one. That one's there, too. And I didn't even notice that the first time. That's so great. Um, but I think I think this is a is a um, a great example of the writing that goes into the, this movie and and just how soundly structured this story is like this is a story that pays off in each of the acts as it kind of progresses its way through. Um, like, how soundly do you think this structure is around this film? I mean, I'm jealous of Martin McDonough's writing on this film. It's it's so well put together, and it makes me as a as a a, a TV writer, it makes me. It's like it makes me angry because I'm like, oh man, that like that's that's what I want to strive for. Like it, it was just it's so clean. The math of this story is so clean, and I love that it. I I love how it uses voiceover at the beginning and end. I love that it doesn't necessarily let us know whether or not Ray has survived. I think he's dead. Uh, personally, but that everything about it is just, it's a wonderful little 
clockwork piece. And I, with watching a couple of McDonough's things now, uh, the the only other one I've I've seen three billboards outside Epping, Mississippi, um, but again, a very well structured story. Yeah, I think the structure is is everything about this because, like you say, the story itself is not like the, it's not like a lot of things happen in it, but the way that that it plays out is incredibly well paced, and everything is introduced just at the right time, and what seems like this random encounter with what he you know calls the Americans in the restaurant. Like all of these things play together later for why he comes back and what happens with uh, Yuri, who provides the guns, and like everything is so well paced and it's so it, it plays out perfectly. It has its place. Nothing feels forced, um, including even like the, how it all comes together in the end with why um, uh, Harry would confuse the the actor uh, for a child and all of this has all been established earlier in a very elegant sort of scene. All ties back in, and and I think the the. F- the interesting part about this story and the writing in this story from Martin McDonough was um, he talked about creating this story out of his own trip to Bruges, where he had this conflicted sense of tourism, where he's like, you know, after a few first few hours, it was this beautiful place and I was having a lovely time. And then after that, I started finding myself really bored. And that turned into two characters, right? Ken, who loves the place, Ray, who can't stand being there. And then he worked backwards from these characters who exist and why would they be there and why would they have to stay there? And, 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 and what, like this kind of existential crisis for, for each of them, ultimately that kind of spawns out of that as he worked backwards from just this simple idea of like, this is a pretty town, but I'm bored. Like, I I love that. That's the seed of kind of all of these things. And then he, um, interweaves um all of these places and sites and and you know scene scenery or whatever about the town into this story to help also fulfill kind of these um moods or or emotions or whatever that are going on because uh definitely the city is interwoven we'll talk about the city in a moment but evan already kind of touched on it the ending um how how do each of you feel about the well we know how evan feels but michael how do you feel about the ending of this movie I really enjoyed it. I think that I think that it just kind of gets all of these things. They all get to play out their destiny in a way. Like it is, I think that what um, Brendan Gleeson is trying to do is to give the the kid a chance to essentially live his life and do something different. Harry gets to play out his thing around, you know, like you you have to do this. Like someone made a mistake. I have to be there. I have to fix it. And then he makes the same mistake, so he has to live by that. And in my head, I actually think that Ray survives. Mm. I think he does get a chance to do that and and change his life and do something different. And and I think that how he gets into it, everything that they do about like arguing not to shoot up the hotel, not to put the the owner at risk, like all of this is just so nicely done. And they kind of agree we're just going to have it out with each other. Uh, so, so I, I really like the ending, and I, I have a slightly more hopeful twist to it. He's going to be miserable. He's going to, you know, he's going to have that version of living in hell, uh, but I think he will live. So, uh, it's one of the questions I have. So, I think Ray, so Colin Farrell's character, is a bit of a dirtbag, and I will say. I enjoy the way it ends, but I don't really know that I feel like Ray deserves redemption. Like I, I he's sad that he killed the kid. 
that makes sense. But like, besides that, I don't know that I found anything redeeming about him. That's kind of the one thing I'm like, I found you funny at points. Is that enough to make me want you to not die? I don't know. You did shoot a kid and you're in the mob. You're your hit man. Whether it was your True first job or not. Yeah, I think I think it comes back to true antiheroes and and that what we're watching is like the 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 backside of an assassin movie or an action flick kind of after after the the you know the big heist and the big shootouts and everything like this is what happens after and everyone actually has to deal with all the collateral damage that they've done like can you imagine if the people from Fast and Furious like Actually, like sitting down after they've all like, you know, had their family barbecue and had their Coronas and then be like, oh, shit, like we killed a lot of people as we dragged. But but I also think like the the way I look at it is so how did how did Ken become Ken? And somewhere in the back of my head, I think that he sees enough of himself in Ray to say, like, look, I was I was that guy. And to give him a chance to to change and have that right example, that's kind of how I look at it. I, I I don't have any illusions that Ken was always this wise, you know, caring, uh, older statesman figure. Uh, so I that's that's where I put my hopes in in Ray. As a I will character. I will say um, that to your point there, Michael, there was a good chunk of the story uh, that got left on the editing room floor. So uh, you know, in my in my joy of hunting down deleted scenes and you know extended editions and that kind of stuff, there is about um, twenty minutes of this movie that got chopped, and I think the movie is a lot better for it uh, because there's a number of scenes that take place. Uh, either before uh, the movie takes place or outside of Bruges, which really takes away the, fo- I mean, the name of the movie is in Bruges. So if you're not in Bruges, don't, don't tell me anything about it. The only scene that now takes place outside of that kind of direct storyline is um, the, the actual assassination of the priest that kills the kid. But um, in some of those deleted scenes, uh, there's actually a bit about Ken becoming Ken uh, that we all know and love. It's actually a flashback to young Harry and young Ken uh, young Harry is played by uh, Matt Smith, the Doctor Who Matt Smith. Um, and basically, um, Harry uh, goes and kills a cop in the middle of a police station after he finds out that that cop had killed Ken's girlfriend. And that's what basically binds Ken to Harry is Harry takes out vengeance for him. And I'm like, right, which we the- hear about in the that's right. In the story, but this is the this is the show don't tell version. Okay, that's right. And so uh, in in that scene that you're talking about, Evan, um, they, they, he makes a motion of like you know because he and he like makes this chopping gesture. Uh, it's because he walks in and he actually pulls out a machete and hacks hacks the oh, cop. Whoa. Yeah, but it's like that. I like I like the um, fill in the the blanks that you wind up with of like okay, he did, Harry did something, and so there's a lot of these scenes that are taken out where we're just left to fill in the blanks, and I think the story is better for that because I think it 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 lets you you know flesh out these characters, flesh out the story in a lot of ways that is I don't know better. Because I think there is supposed to be that ambig- ambiguity and it's more helpful to the characters when there is ambiguity about how good they are and how bad they are. And I think, you know, um, lets you ask your own questions about violence. Right. And that's kind of what mm-hmm. you're ta- talking about, Evan, is like, you know, 
what what is this saying about violence? Because these are antiheroes after the job gone wrong. And this is what happens when you spray a place up with bullets is you hit a kid. And then, you know, you're forced to confront the reality of what you've done because you're human as opposed to, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger with a minigun running around a villa, right? Moving on, let's talk about the rest of how this movie looks and feels. So I think one of the standouts here is obviously the town itself. We kind of touched mm-hmm. on it already, like this medieval town of Bruges. Uh, it is a beautiful place. I love the fact that Colin Farrell keeps continually shitting on Bruges for really no reason. And it is, it delights me to, to no end because I've, I like when uh, a character just locks on to something and for no good reason just piles vitriol on it. John Oliver does it all the time on Last Week Tonight because it's funny. It is funny. You know, and and also also because like in his case, like he feels like we're just going to go back home. And continue our lives. Like he's holding on to this idea yeah. that we could just go back home and continue. Like, let's just say what this was. This was a mistake. We laid low for three days because people will forget about it. And then we can go back and kind of uh, drink our beers and continue doing things. Like there's, I think that kind of like just shows that he's holding on to this idea. And it's so, it's such a long shot, but he's just holding on to this hope that, you know, can we just go back home Yeah, now? he hates it not because of actually hating it, but because of what it represents for him. Right. Because even as they're like, as the um, opening credits or whatever, or finishing or whatever, you hear them getting off the bus uh, and like him, like, this is a shithole. It's like, you weren't even in the town yet. Like, how are you saying this is a shithole, but it's just where he is mentally. Right. But um, what about the town itself? Could you, do you think you could have done this movie? I mean, obviously with a different title, but like, could you have done this movie in a different place and had it, had it have the same effect because I think there's something brooding about this medieval architecture and these ancient, you know, cathedrals or, you know, towers that maybe lend some credibility to this. I think you probably could have, uh, but you would have to do it very carefully. Uh, you know, I think you could have done in Prague. I think you probably could have done in Florence, even maybe, but the way that the uh, Christian iconography is tied in so tightly, it very much has to be, uh, you know, a, a European town, um, and uh, and it needs to be a European town that has sort of that level of um, medieval and Renaissance um, Christian art, because that feeds in a lot into, into this movie. You know, the, the fact that, that Ray kills a priest and, and a child in a church and then is dragged around to churches uh, in Bruges is, fantastic and it, it's so and so dark because i think you don't quite know that uh that he is has killed a child when he's 
or, or a priest when he's first being dragged around to these churches and he's sitting there and looking miserable and making as much noise as he possibly can. Yeah. Fidgeting like a kid at points where you're just like, shut up, Ray, shut up. And it's not just the, the, the symbolism, but it also is, you would have to rewrite so much because it has to be uh, obscure enough, the place that someone would say, where am I in, Bruges, right? Like, why this? It's got to be obscure enough that you don't have tons and tons of tourists. Like, it wouldn't really work if it was somewhere super famous because it would be like, oh, great, we're we're going right. to you know Prague. <laughs> Yay! They've Venice. got good beer. Yeah. I like the beer. Yeah. yeah. No, I th- I think yeah. in Prague the- probably would have worked. I re- I really do. But you would have but you would have had to rewrite a bunch of things. Is what I'm. It would have been a different. Yeah, movie. I I agree. I mean, it would have been in Prague probably. But um, I think I think you're right, Evan. I, I think one of the big callouts here too is the the Hieronymus Bosch painting, the the Last Judgment. Uh, that the only painting that Ray likes in in the entire place uh, when they're going through the the art gallery um, winds up being not only number one one of the callbacks because the movie set mm-hmm. that they're on when he gets shot is full of people dressed up like things from that that thing, but to your point, it's also ties back to the, um, you know, the, the, the Christian symbolism that is there throughout this. Right. And it is ultimately that scene that is a, a tie in for, um, you know, all three of them. It's their their last judgment, their reckoning moment or whatever in this movie, too. Right. Yeah, um, because this movie deals so much with, you know, again, morality, mortality, punishment and retribution. Yeah. And in, in a very Christian sense. Absolutely. Now, um, this movie, again, takes place in and about uh, Bruges. Um, lots of shots throughout the town. There's a mix of uh, I think this is about 95 percent actually shot on location in Bruges. I think the only part they didn't shoot um, on location was the scenes up at the top of the bell tower because it's just too small and also at the at the top of a bell tower. Uh, so they they created a, a set for that. But otherwise shot in and around town, which it required a real mix of of like camera work here, some handheld, some, some static. Um, like, how do you think that worked out in terms of how this movie looks and feels? Yay to the static, uh, camera. I am not a fan of handheld camera and I was a little bit concerned is from the jump. They start with some really, really shaky handheld. And I just like, put my head in my hands and it was like, oh, 2008. Great. We are at like peak shaky cam right now. Is this how this whole movie is going to be? And luckily that goes away. It did not give the best first impression to me. I So the, the reason I disagree is because I don't have the, the industry insider perspective. And so it didn't trigger that at all. I thought that as a viewer, they made really good use of the the two different modes, and I think that it was appropriate. It it was like the, it generated a sense of of tension and action and movement when it needed to be. So that's how I saw it, um, and and so I'm really pleased with with how they. And did I'm that. not saying it as an industry insider. I'm saying it just because I hate handheld camera. It really bothers me. Finally, the truth is now out. I know, right? You know, well, yeah, we're picking the born movies after this. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy, here we go. Um, so speaking of movement, I mean, this is a, a, a movie that is, um, you know, it's, it's not tense and dramatic. It's not crazy action scenes all over the place, but it does feature uh, a handful of, um, 
stunts, visual effects uh, that I think come off quite strongly. So I'd be interested to know what you think of kind of the 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 effects that do go into this film. I mean, the sound of uh, Brendan Gleeson hitting the pavement uh, when he jumps from the bell tower is absolutely sickening. Uh, the, I mean, I will say the the one thing that didn't work for me, and this is something that seems to be a bit of a theme, is uh, in the movies that we've watched uh, over the last little bit, the blood doesn't quite look like blood, you know, when Brendan Gleeson gets shot in the neck, that blood, it's not great, but I am, I am so into the movie at that point. It's fine. That is a minor quibble. It, it's funny you say that because I, so first of all, hundred percent agree about the sound effect. That is probably the, I, I don't know what it's supposed to sound like, but I, I'm going to put all my money that that's what it sounds like. If someone does exactly that. Um, I actually disagree about the the blood. I, I found that to be very convincing. Really? That scene to me is I I could very much believe um, his injury. Um, and similarly, when when you see him speaking just a, the few words after he drops, like that also I thought was believably someone oh, close Gleason's, seconds Gleason's away from death. Death is fantastic. The way I mean, his eyes just sort of go up and come back down. It's like, Oh, they actually, they actually dilate when he uh, dies too, which I don't know how you do intentionally. Maybe it's just chance, but they actually dilated it in the scene too. I, yeah, I will say um, just going back to the effects around that. I, I don't know how he wasn't already dead when like three of his limbs, I think had popped off hitting Mm -hmm. the ground. I was a little bit like, oh, yeah, I forgot that he was still alive the first time I rewatched this. I was like, how? Because he was like a balloon full of blood when he hit the ground and just popped. And now hmm? they they have a they have a minute long chat before he's like, "Okay, I think I'm going to die now and then dies, (laughs) which possibly some of my favorite last words ever in a film. But um. I think maybe that's a good point to take a breath uh, with Brendan Gleeson having exploded everywhere and died fantastically uh, and take a quick break. Uh, and then when we come back on the other side, we can talk about some of the questions that I still had after I watched this movie. Okay, we're back. Uh, and I have some questions after well, up, Chris. watching this movie. Man, will I? So um, for each of you, uh, what do you think the priest did to Harry? Because when Ray shoots him, it's not just like, you know, it can't be bad enough because I think Harry is a man of his word. He would have gone, gone and taken care of the priest himself. He sends some new guy to go shoot the priest. What do you think the priest did to to deserve getting shot? It's a good question. I actually think, you know, the, the way that you ask it, I didn't think about it, but the way you ask it, I would say it's almost like it was not serious enough for Harry to do it himself because he would have, exactly like you, you point out. So there's something that would have gone against uh, some real kind of like commitment because Harry's big on promises and commitments and doing the right thing. So there would have been something like that, but not bad enough or he would have done it himself. I think the priest owed him money. I think the priest uh, was was uh, playing the ponies. Do they play the ponies in Britain? Great, 
Greyhound? I don't know. Greyhounds? Monkeys? Leisure races? I don't know. What do they do? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, he was he was playing the Badgers, and uh, you know he he wound up in the hole to uh, to Harry. They were playing the Badgers, and they put in a, a Greyhound instead, Ooh, painted with I stripes. Mean, the classic bait and switch in British racing. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Uh, so next question on the tourist spectrum of the Ken, I like it here to the Ray. It's a shithole. Uh, where would you find yourselves falling when you're typically on a trip? I, you have both traveled with me or I have traveled with you, Chris. We've traveled to uh, some places that have a whole lot of art and churches and whatnot to look at since we have traveled a couple cities in in Italy together. Uh, so I think, you know, I fall heavily on the Ken spectrum. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I am. I am just absolutely delighted to be traveling and looking at things. Yeah, there aren't enough hours in the day for Evan to see all the things. It's true. So for me, I I am one of these people. I need to know what we're about to do. I need to have it beforehand. We're going to go here and do this thing, and then I'm good. If I was dragged somewhere and then dragged to um, museums to look at things, I would be. I, I would be exactly behaving that way. I'd be childish, immature, biting my nails and be like, can we just go and play bowling? Uh, I, I, I suppose. Um, but I would love it there. I would love uh, Bruges. I would love all the other aspects, but I would not like to be dragged there and then be dragged to all of these cultural experiences um, if I, I didn't know about them. Well, beforehand. that's a nice segue because I was going to ask each of you too, after seeing the movie or seeing the movie many, 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 many times. Um, I, I Basically, I think Michael and Evan almost saw the movie the same number of times, except Michael actually watched it every time and Evan somehow <laughs> fell short. But after, after all the attempts or actual viewings, are you more or less likely to actually go to Bruges now. I totally want to go to Bruges. I want to go uh, to Bruges with both of you. I want to go on a Belgian beer tour with uh, with all y'all. I think that would be awesome. Let's make it happen. There, there you go, though. So a tour, I think, is the, the key word. I would like to stay there no more than two days and then go on somewhere else. And I think it would thoroughly enjoy those two days. Well, there you go. Maybe we'll do a live show at some point uh, and it'll be uh, in Bruges. Uh, and then we'll watch in Bruges again just to make it way too meta. Um, <laughs> so maybe last question here. Um, is this a film that you think you'll come back to? What would get you back to this film? Well, I, you know, I, I think Michael will probably be coming back to this film, given that he's seen it so many times. Um I will probably come back to this film um, when I want that that level of uh, black comedy, um, that level of black comedy and and to deconstruct it more. Like I said, I'm jealous of the writing in this movie. So, yeah, I'll probably go back to it and just really like really break it down, really watch for all of the callbacks and, and kind of make it a bit of a case study. So I'll, I'll probably be back to it in the, within the year. So for me, I think it's interesting now to see that the movies that we've talked about so far in, in this series 
I think we've all had reasons to come back to movies for different reasons. And either it's because you want to watch an individual scene. I think over the past couple of ones we've seen, like we've, we've noticed different things from when we first saw them. And then, you know, 10, 20, 30 years later, this one, I think is more like the, the latter of that, like, because it is so hard to pin down. It's not a comedy. It's not an action movie. It's not a heist movie yet. It's all of these things. It's a drama. Um, I think that you can come back and see something slightly different every time. And for me, like I just I I just rejoice in that unexpected stuff. The the laughter is there at the completely inappropriate times just because the absurdity of the situation or the the acting of it. So yeah, I, I like to come back and just enjoy it because there's something new every time. Yeah, I I enjoy this movie. I think um I think I don't know if either of you have seen Banshees of Inisherin yet, but it's yet. it's a very good movie, and it is also extremely well told with a great tech. And so for me, both uh, Banshees of Inisherin and uh, Three Billboards are two movies from Martin McDonough that I think are stronger movies. I I get more excited about rewatching both of those. But mm-hmm. that being said, if I if I was sitting around and somebody was like, "Hey, I haven't seen this," I'd be like, "Okay, hey, sure, I'm in." I'm in for that. I don't know that I'm going to, you know, set Michael's annual reminder that uh, it's time to watch, uh, watch it again. But like, you know, if somebody hadn't seen it, I'd be like, yeah, I'll watch along. It's a fun. It's, you know, I think I'll still find chuckles. I'll still probably find some stuff that I haven't noticed. You know, some of those callbacks that I'm like, oh, there's even more. I missed another one. Um, but I definitely think there's a lot to to come back to, which is still going to be funny and and um, thoughtful about this movie regardless. So. Hey, listen, listen, Chris, like maybe, maybe that's what hell is, right? Like spending rest of eternity watching in Bruges, in Bruges, uh, in Bruges, in Bruges for all of eternity. Yeah. There you go. And with that, I think that's probably a good place to call it. So that's what we thought about in Bruges. And well, we'd love to know what you thought too. So you can always find us on Twitter at how did you miss this? That's H D Y M T underscore pod. And while you're there, take a look at some of the other movies that we're planning on watching soon. Send us any questions or thoughts or things that you might want us to cover on the show. And if you enjoy what we're doing, please do us a favor. Take a second to rate review, subscribe on Apple podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you happen to be listening. And we'll be back with you next week. And we're going to be talking about Empire Records and whether the critics got it wrong and this is a 90s classic or whether this is a movie that should have stayed best. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with you then.